with that time, George. Assuming that you, the listener, are hearing the words that I am saying right now, it means that we finally got through a podcast edition of Times Ours as regularly scheduled without some crazy bonkers news breaking halfway through. Now, if we find out that in about 45 minutes, the Chiefs trade back up into the first round with our two second round picks, then once again, we'll have another lost episode that goes into the archives of, of really just the memories of us. Uh, of just uh, myself, Joshua Briscoe, Nate Taylor, who will talk next probably, Seth Kaiser, who will be after that, and Danielle would remember the podcast uh, from from last week before everything went to bleep. Uh, although Marissa's producing the show today, mm-hmm. which I imagine uh, will only mean good things because Danielle can't like just shoot the uh, the shame daggers through, you know, whenever we spend four minutes on uh, how, how attractive Seth thinks the lead actor from the show Arrow is, and then Danielle has to realize that that hour of her life was wasted. <laughs> it's just sort of sharing the burden. So Marissa's now the one sharing the burden uh, on, on today's show. Uh, all praise Danielle. Uh, thank goodness Marissa's here because th- this this ultimately means that uh, nothing's gonna happen, right? Like, you know, we just we just add that one new element into it, and, and everything's fine. Um, no, I mean it means that it just means that this week we're wasting Marissa's time instead of wasting Danielle's time. That's all it means. That's all. It means. Like, They're trading for somebody. I like the Something's idea of having a Patsy to blame. <laughs> and then it can be Danielle. If everything goes smooth, it's like, ah, oh, I knew it was that Danielle all along. And also, no one's time is wasted with the not only incredibly handsome, but wonderful actor, Stephen Amell, <laughs> who I've decided I am going to take up the charge of he should be added into the DCU, I'm thinking. I just yeah. I just finished the Snyder Cut. My kids were actually unborn when I began it, and I just finished it. and and it was a great movie so i'm just throwing that out there because it's on my mind today but no one's time is wasted hearing about Stephen amell joshua he should he should be added to the dc you think he should be added to the dc universe your wife thinks he should be added to your marriage and you know that's that basically summarizes what you may have missed in the last episode from last week but now it's draft week the draft's almost here. draft week i mean come on now uh to give you a little behind the curtain we did take a take a momentary break for the Denver Broncos acknowledging that they they might not be ready to compete in 2021. Okay? <laughs> yeah. They they just <laughs> traded for Teddy Bridgewater. We we had a moment of silence and now we're ready to record the podcast and discuss a draft <laughs> that I find to be wildly entertaining before it even starts. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, so that that was the news of the day just shortly before we hit record. The the Broncos have traded for Teddy Bridgewater. They're sending a sixth-round pick to Carolina. The Panthers are paying Bridgewater $7 million this year. The Broncos are paying him $3 million this year. Several reports have said the Broncos could still take a quarterback on Thursday. We'll see about okay. that. Um, what I will say <laughs> – what I, what I will say only slightly less dismissively um, – is that is that they've they've improved the floor of their quarterback position yes. today, and that doesn't matter whenever you're also playing in the division with Patrick Mahomes and really to some extent Justin Herbert. Yep. So good luck, Denver. You guys are hilarious and adorable. You're such a cute little franchise. Do the Denver Broncos have a plan? No, <laughs> I don't think they do. Look, I will say I've always liked Teddy Bridgewater, and maybe. This is what he needed because they got receivers. They do. They got receivers. Mm-hmm. Their line isn't good, but it's not like horrendous. Well, it's pretty bad. But like Bulls came around last year. They started, mm-hmm. they started to play really well. Yep. Maybe this could be it. You know, this could be where he shows, hey, I can be that guy that people thought maybe I could be and that it looked like I might be in Minnesota for a while. And it is an improvement. They got a good roster. You know, Vic Fangio plays Mahomes all right. Not, I, I mean, it hasn't really been close at all. <laughs> at all? <laughs> like, I, I mean, said, remember, last remember, they played, it was over in, like, the second quarter. Remember, so. remember Chris Collinsworth was like, I don't know, Al. Right here, fourth quarter <laughs> in his hometown. Here we go. This is a big moment for Drew Locke. Three snaps later. Interception game over. Okay, boys, 2021. <laughs> yeah. Like, like never, never forget that Al, <laughs> that Chris Collins was like, like, I don't know, Al Michaels. Hey, Denver Broncos down six. Drew Locke yeah. got the ball. Lesson two. Let's see what Matt. 
Okay, and um, <laughs> here's what's airing on NBC Wednesday night, folks. I mean, it's <laughs> coming coming up next will be 60 minutes. <laughs> it just... won't actually be late because this one's over. Yeah, so like, <laughs> I mean, I know this appears as if we're dunking on the Denver Broncos, and your assumption would be correct. Um, <laughs> I do want to say really quickly that Teddy Bridgewater has the the capability and the talent and the wherewithal really to have a Alex Smith 2017 season. Mm-hmm. Problem is, Andy Reid's not his head coach. Kareem Hunt's yep, not his running dude. back. Tyreek Hill isn't his wide receiver one. And Travis Kelsey is nowhere in the state of Colorado. So <laughs> I understand what Denver's doing to the best of their abilities right now, even though, and this is my theory, uh, Bill Belichick must have spooked them to death. Because, like, does he, have a, does he have an offer to Atlanta to Carolina where he could just move ahead of Denver at nine and, and take a take a Justin Fields if he's there. I, I don't know. Um I but hey, maybe the Denver Broncos weren't willing to be they weren't willing to go full Arizona, which was like or even half Arizona, because they got really they got rid of Josh Rosen after one year, which again, still mind boggling, but ultimately the right decision, uh, based on the context of NFL history. Like Denver didn't want to go a quarter Arizona where they were just like, we love you, Drew, but like, eh. so, Hey, can Teddy Bridgewater get close to pro bowl level play similar to Alex Smith in 2017 without, without the, yeah, with, Alex, without the resources. Um, yeah. exactly. <laughs> that, that is exactly what I was going to say. I think, I think if, if Teddy Bridgewater would have stepped in to the chiefs offense with Andy Reed, uh, whenever he entered the league or, or just pick him up whatever point through the, the Alex Smith era you want, he could probably do some of that stuff, most of that stuff maybe, but he doesn't have all that stuff. Also, um, Seth, you mentioned Vic Fangio, and I swear I went through, I go through this all the time, and it's usually with Vic Fangio, where you said Vic Fangio, and I thought, no, Seth, he got fired. And I, Wait a second. No, he didn't. Right, and then I googled it, and he's still the head coach of the Broncos. I just wanted to, you know, triple check that. And it's, I'm gonna call it the Bob Barker effect because every single time someone mentions Bob Barker or he comes up in conversation, <laughs> I think he's dead. He right? Still, no, you know what? I don't think he's he still is with dead. Us? <sighs> and so I google it, and he's 97 and out there kicking Bob somewhere. Bob Barker so good is still for alive. See, yes, now that's that, look, that's that's impressive because I remember it being funny when he beat up Happy Gilmore because he was so old, and that was a minute right. ago, <laughs> right? Like, right. yeah, that was like before Josh was. He's born. been old for fifty years. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but yeah, and, so, and we all, and by the way, we all aspire to be to have such a to have such a life, you know? Because yeah, man, uh, ninety-seven. That yeah, is absolutely. that is awesome. I've told he's ninety-seven. Uh, Happy Gilmore. Happy Gilmore came out in nineteen ninety-six. <laughs> Were you born yet, Josh? Tell us honestly. I I would have I would have been a year or two old depending on when this uh, film Good came Lord. out. I would have been wow. Just my heart. On a completely unrelated note, if I make it to ninety, I'm gonna start smoking again. I think that's fair, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Like, like, what do you want those last seven years for? You think Bob Barker's yeah. like, like there was a story that came out a couple days ago that's like people who eat French fries two to three times a week don't live as long i was like yeah dude but if i can live this if i can get to a, a sweet yeah, i don't know 75 and i live in a life with french fries as opposed to 85 without the french carrot. fries what's gonna make me happier yeah i i completely agree so my my grandmother-in-law smokes like a chimney and i miss smoking every time every time I'm around her and i love her she's awesome she is she is the coolest and, and it concerns my wife sometimes. I'm probably oversharing here. She's going to get mad at me. And she and she's like, okay. oh, I just wish she wouldn't. I'm like, what? Let her let smoke. That, let that like, woman cook or let yeah, her light let it up her, or whatever the, yeah, whatever the phrase do, is. Yeah, like seriously, let her do whatever she wants. I mean, there's got to be some reward for making it to the home stretch. And like, hey, I'm going to smoke. I'm going to do whatever I want. It's like, well, you can't have steak with a side of steak. It's like, I'm pretty sure I can at this point. So, Seth, I have uh, I've, <laughs> I've Googled Something that has led me to report here officially on this podcast that I have at least one source on the internet that says Stephen Amell smokes on occasion. See, well, then now now I know. So if I, so your wife's if, gonna have to get used to it one way or another, is what I'm saying. <laughs> 
So this actually is a good segue. This might be able to get it to bring us around because so the last time, you know, we had that emergency thing. You know why it was such an emergency podcast last time and why everything fell apart? It's because Brett Veach looked us all in the eye and lied stone face to everyone. He was sitting there, well, you know, uh, Kyle Long's got some experience at tackle. Uh-huh. You know, I, I bet Joe I bet Joe Tooney could play there in a pinch. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, you know, I think Chris Jones has wanted to shift positions for a while to the edge. Maybe he meant on offense. And so the reason, and so the reason that comes up, it's my wife once told me that Stephen Amell, she doesn't think he's good looking, and she's clearly lying to me to spare my feelings. And that's exactly what Brett Veach was doing. Just bald-faced, looking us in the eye and saying the most preposterous crap while the trade was being finalized. Um... That that was Ooh. Seth's version of Steph Curry this month, which is I don't care that mm-hmm. we a five hundred team and we trying to play into the play in, but I'm gonna get these shots up. So <laughs> hey, they they out here he out here swishing y'all and just just enjoy the ride, you know. Get on Seth's back, um, and 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 Lord Jazz, um, we we sincerely apologize. Um, yeah, don't let him listen. Moving, moving on. Yeah. And speaking speaking of all those lies, the Chiefs did trade for Orlando Brown. I think that might have been our best intro of this show of all time, and I'm just going to move on to the next thing now. Uh, Orlando Brown was the reason that we brought you the emergency podcast briefly after we had recorded one very good podcast. <laughs> and, and then we brought you a much shorter, much worse <laughs> podcast after the news broke. Uh, but now we can do another pretty good and decently liked episode and uh, and let's talk about Orlando Brown Jr. for a second we've already at this point everyone knows the terms and the draft picks and it's a bunch of picks and the value could be anywhere between like 21 and 44 depending on who you ask um and that's all you know there's there's a range there it's subjective yada 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 we get that but what is new from the last episode is that Seth has done a full-on Orlando Brown Jr. film review up in the Chief in the North newsletter. And, uh, I mean, Seth, we, at this point, regular listeners of this show probably have a pretty good idea of how you chart lineman snaps. Um, I, I think there are a few specific traits from Orlando Brown Jr. that you point out that are maybe the most interesting things. If you want to get, like, all of the numbers and stuff, go check it out. You can go to bit.ly slash Seth Hates Money or Seth Really Hates Money to make sure you're getting Seth's best deal there. Um, but whenever you look at, at some of the, the, the bigger picture stuff with Orlando Brown, how did you feel uh, before and then after going through all the film? Um, going into it, I was a little hesitant because you never know with a younger player. Fisher had a good year last year. Um, there was some hesitation on my part because I was concerned, you know, did they get desperate? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, after watching the film... I really like the move. Now, I understand they, they gave up some value in the draft. And again, you know, depends where you are. I really like the move, and I, I would just frame it this way. You never know how a player is going to transition from one scheme to the other. Because playing in Baltimore, then playing in Kansas City, two very different things in terms of what they ask their linemen to do. But I would say if he plays at a similar skill level that he played last year, and keep in mind that he's 24, and we can talk about that later because mm-hmm. – most 24-year-old linemen don't just stay the same, uh, mm-hmm. especially ones that have already made two Pro Bowls at two different positions. Um, I would say he is an upgrade over Fisher, a small one in the pass protection department, but it's particularly noticeable against high-level competition, particularly power rushers like uh, Carl Lawson, um, Alden Smith. He shut down Alden Smith. Like a lot of Chiefs fans, you know, and Smith isn't as elite as he used to be, but he's still a very good pass rusher. Shut him down. And those, some of those power-based guys, uh, or Justin Houston, for example, that give uh, Fisher trouble, they don't give Brown nearly as much trouble because of his particular skill set. So I think you might, you're might you going to see an upgrade there. Again, if he plays the same way he played last year, no better, no worse, you'd see a small upgrade there, particularly against higher-end competition. And in the run game, it's just different. I think it's about the same, but just different. Very different players. So why don't you expand on some of the scheme differences first? Because I want to get Nate to sound off on that as well. Sure. Um, but but what are the differences between – and it, it, it's more complicated than the Ravens ran it more and the Chiefs pass it more. Because some of the stuff that he's doing in ver- – the ways that they ask him to perform differently in pass blocking I think is really interesting. Yep. So can you, can you dissect a little bit of, of those specifics of what was he doing in Baltimore that he was very good at 
what will the chief what have the chiefs historically asked left tackles to do in this offense and then how do you think that transition would go man i just want to compliment you on the way that question was phrased because i was like well which thing does he want me to talk about the longer (laughs) you talked i was like i know exactly what he wants me to talk about i usually get there sometimes it takes me a while well usually i interrupt you when you're like two-thirds of the way there (laughs) it's like ah i hope that answered your question it's like well no i didn't finish my question but <laughs> so the 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 biggest difference um that that you can see when you watch Brown and then watch Fisher in terms of how they do things. And it'll be an interesting question whether the Ravens asked him to do it this way or whether he just did it this way because of his skill set. Is Fisher, generally speaking, took more vertical pass protection sets? What does that mean? Um, you, we're going to have an offensive line coach listen to me and say, Seth, you're butchering the way you're explaining this. But my intention is to explain it to complete lay people such as myself. And so essentially at the snap, rather than moving out towards the defender horizontally, you move back while sliding vertically and you're trying to beat the pass rusher to the top of the pass rush arc. Kind of letting him come to you mm-hmm. a little bit more before contact is initiated. Taking you know three or four steps as opposed to one or two steps horizontally. Now, you've also got you know 45 degree sets and you can talk about what's what. But basically the big thing is the Chiefs, generally speaking, had their tackle set up vertically for to allow for a deeper pocket and to also go along with their skill sets. Mitch Schwartz is a technician, not a power guy. Eric Fisher, not a power guy, more relies on good feet and and staying in front of guys. Um, Brown, very different. He's got like 35 inch arms or something crazy like that, which it's, you know, I'm hesitant to bring that type of stuff up because it gets too much looked into, but with him, like you can see it. He's got really powerful arms. And so what the way he the way he would block in pass blocking sets the majority of the time, probably 80-85% of the time to make up a number on the spot, he would immediately take an aggressive horizontal set to try to initiate contact with the defender, with the edge rusher and get his hands on him and either jar him with a punch or just engulf him with just this massive wingspan. And so it's a very different style of winning. But I'm very curious whether or not the Chiefs want him to keep doing that or they want to say, hey, you keep dominating with your upper body power like that, but we'd rather you take 45-degree sets. Or we'd rather, you know, you go a little more vertical because of how Mahomes plays. So, Nate, what do you what do you make of that? Do you think that, first of all, I mean, the Chiefs obviously knew where his, like, biggest strengths were going to be and that he's not built like Eric Fisher. He doesn't play like Eric Fisher. They weren't looking for an Eric Fisher clone. They were looking for the best left tackle they could add to the team. But do you think that they're going to have him mold to fit this system? Also pointing out the fact that he's about to turn 25, but is still currently 24 years old and has a lot of NFL career ahead of him. Uh, or do you think they'll say, hey, this is how you have succeeded at the tackle position for these these last few years go ahead and play like that and we'll we'll move to you what do you think is more likely or will it be a a combo of those things yeah it's a really good question and I feel like it it probably needs to be a combo of two things because um we're looking at this both in the context of next season and beyond because obviously you don't send the first round pick uh for a player of need and then want that player to not be a part of the equation in the long term, especially knowing that he's protecting Patrick Mahomes' blind side. Um, what the Chiefs hope through the prime of both of their careers, uh, if not to the extended prime, uh, as they get into their 30s. So I think uh, what Seth has said and what I read in his piece in his newsletter, and it's really well done, I think for Eric Bieniemy, Andy Heck, the offensive line assistant, and Andy Reid, the head coach, they just went through their entire scheme evaluations for last season and what they want to do next season. Now, Andy Reid has always been a innovator in terms of the passing game. Well, in order to keep pushing the pendulum forward, you need to create as many mismatches actually past the line of scrimmage, right? Mm-hmm. For your quarterback. Um, and this is something that Orlando Brown said towards the end of his press conference on Monday. He feels that he's capable of winning at a very high percentage, perhaps even, perhaps hopefully more similar to, and tell me if I'm right here, Seth, winning 
at a high percentage closer to Mitchell Schwartz than even Eric Fisher because if he doesn't need chip help, if he doesn't need the line to shift in his direction, the Chiefs' overall scheme evaluation can stay on a similar progress the way it has over the last four or five seasons since Mitchell Schwartz and Eric Fisher on the roster, and you can sort of put those guys on an island. Now, what was fascinating in reading Seth's piece and understanding just watching um, his play in a completely different offense that's mostly uh, misdirection, quick stuff, rhythm-based things, not throwing the ball deep as much, is that they at least know Orlando Brown should win one-on-one matchups for the majority of the time. Depending on whether you want him to to die a slow death, which means just keep working, keep working, keep working. Patrick Mahomes has extended the play. You know uh, he's eventually going to find somebody as long as you just stay between your guy and the quarterback. And how much of it is it going to be using the the, the, the using the skill set and the tools that he already has so that he can be perhaps more aggressive coming out of his stance against a power guy versus a speed guy like Bud Dupree because I think that was an interesting matchup that Chiefs fans should look into given that both of these players know each other very well. They obviously see each other in the division twice a year and Bud Dupree, pre his injury, would give a lot of speed, athletic, but still strong combinations that would make any tackle you know, somewhat fearful of an outcome if you're not really understanding where you're setting your technique and understanding how to counter what Bud Dupree is presenting to you. So that'll be fascinating moving forward. But I do think instead of teaching a young rookie all of these things, you now have a a pretty good base to work from because you know that player can win one-on-one matchups. And if the tackle can win one-on-one matchups, then that means you could have five players continuing to find space and create mismatches no matter who the secondary is. I don't care if it's the great 49ers secondary of two years ago, or even if it's the Buccaneers secondary that ultimately became champions, but the equation becomes a lot harder for that group, obviously, if the offensive line is more intact because your left tackle is healthy and can be dominant. The one element of that, and then I, I want to know how you're feeling about all that, Seth, but one element of that that I have brought up a couple times on the radio show and that, that has popped up on Twitter a couple times that I think is interesting, that it is somewhat related, is whenever you look back to the Super Bowl and specifically how that all fell apart in a disastrous way, uh, it wasn't the Chiefs' starting offensive line that failed them. And you, you mentioned how they were able to put guys on an island with Fisher and Schwartz. If they would have had Eric Fisher and, and Mitchell Schwartz, if they would have had Coleccio Simile, if they would have had their week one starting line mm-hmm. in the Super Bowl, um, I don't know if they win the game, but it goes a whole lot differently. The one thing with with the rebuilding project over this offseason is I'm not sure they're necessarily deeper across the line than they were at the start of last year, but they certainly are much better off across the board than they were at the end of last year. And right. so I do wonder, that I, I, that's not completely... Uh, tied to everything that you just laid out there. And it is one element of it, though, that I keep thinking about. Um, because it may, it may be also by get going younger with Brown and Tooney, specifically, yes. the two guys are going to be expensive mm-hmm. who have who have never missed a, a game due to injury. Hopefully, that also ends up all, all correlating there as well. Yes. And one thing that I should mention, too, is, you know, Baltimore, it, it's, it's such a fun, unique offense to watch because mm-hmm. – um, when Lamar Jackson's in shotgun, he's not really taking a, a drop, right, Seth? I mean, he's not really like, mm-hmm. like he's not gonna be. <laughs> for instance, he's not gonna be taking fourteen step, fourteen yard <laughs> dropbacks out of the shotgun like one Patrick Mahomes. So that's gonna require a bit of work. For what does Brown like to do? Okay, well Pat likes to work a little deeper because he has such great vision that. In a lot of ways, you want to just tell the offensive line, just do what the quarterback asks you to do, man. Like, he mm-hmm. he can do things that nobody else can do, right? Like, <laughs> hey, Nick Bosa, I know he's fast. I know he's strong. I'm still dropping back 14 because I'm going I'm to help you out and I'm going to help me out. And I need to get mm-hmm. Tyreek three and a half seconds, four seconds to really run this very complex route at a very, very fast rate of speed. So, it's 
it's funny because I can start to see things are like, oh, that's translatable, or oh, that that mirrors similar to what the Chiefs may do this upcoming season. The problem is, uh, these route these route trees very different, kids. <laughs> very, they're, they're very so different. different. <laughs> so yep. so the quarterback the quarterback's reads on his own are different. Obviously, I think some teams blitz Baltimore with a little bit of assurance. Because they knew the route tree. You blitz the Chiefs, it's it's like pray. Pray to the good Lord it works. I mean, yeah. you know, if everybody's healthy, of course. So unlike the Super Bowl, where like, again, Tampa Bay felt a little more engrossed because they were like, hey, man, we may actually get to the quarterback this time. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so it's just you start to see things, but then you have to remind yourself and you go on game class and you click the other team and it's the Chiefs and you're like, oh, that's why Miami never blitzed because they knew better, you know. So <laughs> it's just you, you just realize these things, and so for Orlando, it's going to be fun, particularly in training camp, to say, "Hey, uh, what did you like here versus this sort of approach, or versus this sort of front?" Or, "Hey, you changed the protections, but that really didn't like. How much does that adjust my responsibilities if I'm still kind of on this one-on-one matchup with whoever the mm-hmm. premier pass rusher across from me?" You know. And that's that's a really good thought because, again, what Brown's game generally has been, again, you know, you win more horizontally. And so in theory, that can develop a little bit of a vulnerability to to speed rushers. He His game, although he, he's got quicker feet than I think he gets credit for, and you can see that in the rare times he had to use it. Um, one, of the, one of the reps I showed uh, in the article was against Bud Dupree where he easily beat him to the top of the arc. Um he he I think he's got the feet for it. Kind of similar, like if you want to talk in terms of like a prospect, like Stone Forsyth with he's got these massive long legs. So even if it looks mm. like he's moving a little slower, he can cover an extra couple feet with each step. It's crazy. Um, it's gonna be different for him though, and you're not gonna to want to try to have him imitate Fisher because they're such different players. Something about Fisher that I, I want to be cautious about how I say it, because Fisher improved over the years and became a good left tackle. And good on him. Um, however, power always bothered him. Even with players with average power, he was not a guy who was going to stonewall defenders. And so because of that, in a lot of ways, it made sense for Mahomes to take really deep drops as a way to buy himself the most time while Fisher was able to, with fast feet, stay in front of guys and then kind of die a slow death, right? Whereas with Brown, where he can excel is even when guys try to get around him because he's such a ridiculously wide body, long arms, upper body power, he's able to direct them around the pocket a little more successfully, even when they have a good rush. And so it's kind of going to be an interesting chicken or egg thing. And I think we're going to see, based on how Mahomes does things, whether or not some of the ways that he did things was, you know, was it chicken or egg? Did he do this because it protected Fisher the most? Did he do it because he didn't trust his interior offensive line? Mm. Did he do it? And that that's a big one, by the way. There's a reason the Chiefs invested in Tooney, grabbed Kyle Long. Wouldn't surprise me if they drafted a center. Um, mm-hmm. they, they, they need an interior offensive line changes a lot of things. If you've got guys you trust there, um, but I it wouldn't surprise me to see him be a little more willing to, you know, take that initial deep drop and then just move forward in the pocket to his left, which incidentally would bring him kind of in Tooney's region, right? And so if he trusts Tooney and he trusts Brown to continually direct guys to either stonewall him or direct him wide, I think you might see a little bit of a difference in how he drops back and maybe a little more reliance on that left side as opposed to maybe a little more reliance on Schwartz's side in previous years. So that's going to be really interesting to watch. But there, it does demonstrate that there's some projection here in terms of what Brown will look like in the Chiefs offense. And in terms of, again, those vertical drops, is that what he's going to do? Or is, are they going to tell him, look, this is how you win. This is how you make the Pro Bowl. So you keep doing you. And then there's just going to be some adjusting to Mahomes needing to, if guys do try to beat him wide more often, to be a little more of a guy who steps up as opposed to one who steps back, which by the way is, uh, that's better generally speaking 
in terms of quarterback footwork. It's generally better right. to step up. Mahomes gets away right. with it because he's a mutant. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. Or or Mahomes only steps up on play action, which quiet mm-hmm. kids. I, I said something that I shouldn't have said, but mm-hmm. uh, he, he he when it's play action, he steps up and lets that thing rip, and it is. It's one of the gorgeous sights in the NFL. In the history of the league, guys. Like, again, the stuff they used to do, and I know we mentioned them earlier, the things they've done to the Denver Broncos on play action is honestly <laughs> criminal. <laughs> you know what that feels like? Hey, Seth, I don't know if it ever feels like Nate's telepathically trying to give you an article idea, but I'd read it. <laughs> I'd watch I'd watch those gifts. Everybody's like, <laughs> again, every offseason, kids. And this is fine. Because this tells you that, yes, Patrick Mahomes is human. I know we like to, you know, grandstand on this concept, but he is human. Um, we can obviously look at beauty and find just a, just a little thing, just a little imperfection. And that, in some ways, accentuates the beauty uh, overwhelming this one imperfection that you, can, that you can notice. But it's been fun to cover this team for this amount of time. And every offseason here, Patrick Mahomes will be like, I got to get better at my footwork. <laughs> and then it's like, but dude, I watched the draft tape. I watched, I, I watched all the all the the pre draft discussion. I saw your tape in college. Um, it's it's good to know that I will struggle with things for the rest of my life, and you will struggle with footwork. Um, regardless of how talented you are at everything else, when it comes to being an NFL quarterback, but we just we just have to remind ourselves sometimes that like, hey, he is human. He ha- Lord knows if he actually gets better at footwork, and he has made progress. I don't want to make it seem like he's been a net negative at that the entire time. Like clearly, he can throw from any platform. He can be off balance. The things he did in the Super Bowl. I mean, they should honestly. They someone should have already erected a statue. Despite getting like, I've never really felt a player raised his Hall of Fame profile in a blowout championship situation more than Patrick Mahomes. Um, Mm -hmm. But if he improves his footwork, and if that is tied to trust in the offensive line, as Seth mentioned, and I know as as Josh referenced, if there's a real sense here that they're going to make such an improvement that you're going to see an even better Patrick Mahomes just because – as we see the puzzle actually kind of matters sometimes, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, then, Hey, you know, uh, maybe you'll see more of those improvements overall, but it is fun to know that, that Patrick still has things to work on, uh, similar to like, we all have things we still need to work on. And it's great. You know, even if it's your own wife telling you, no, I don't find this wildly attractive man. attractive. <laughs> I'll let that be the thing that, that puts a puts a bumper on the Orlando Brown Jr. conversation for now. We'll have plenty of time to talk about him and how he'll work on the offense as the uh, the offseason continues. Let's talk about the draft a little bit because it's almost here. And in fact, Nate, I want to give you like a couple minutes in the middle as like a little halftime, little halftime conversation here. Okay. This isn't about this year's draft, but I thought the story that, that came out this morning that I uh, was reading this morning. Uh, about the Chiefs 2017 draft class and going and getting Mahomes obviously and then also how everything else behind that fizzled out and how uh, there have been a lot of of various sort of fizzling out issues over the last couple years as well it's something you need to go read it's not like this isn't you know hey Nate tell us the breaking news from this story (laughs) but I just think it's a really I think it's really interesting there are a couple conversation topics we might be able to swirl off of it uh but give give people a little a little summary of of what that piece is they can go check out maybe what you took away as being the most interesting once you were done with the story yeah thank you it it, it was such it's such a fun story to work on because like you said you you know the end result and this is what you can do as long as the CBA sort of stays the same, as long as the draft structure stays the same, like we're not adding rounds or we're not changing things wildly, it, it, it it's it's fully known that you can really evaluate a draft class four years after the fact because rookie deals after the first round are four-year contracts. And so um, the thing that just jumped out to me, and I even texted, you know, I, I texted Josh and Seth, and I was like, I mean, I know this year's draft is important because, one, we didn't know Orlando Brown was coming. Um, and, two, the team needed a tackle. But it's like, guys, I, I know this is important right now. 
did you know that there's no one on the roster anymore in the 2017 draft other than Mahomes? Like, and the Chiefs have this reputation, which they've earned, of being a really good front office that knows how to scout, that knows how to develop players, that knows how to properly project where players typically are going to be slotted. I mean, they understood that, hey, the New Orleans Saints were probably going to take Mahomes at 11 if they didn't jump above them and get to 10 uh, and working out a deal with Buffalo. So they, whether it's John Dorsey or Brett Beach in the in the Andy Reid era, they've, they've, they've done a very good job drafting. But, dog, <laughs> this is, whoo! I mean, Tato Passigno. They traded up, or no, they actually didn't trade up, but they, they took him as a second-round developmental defensive end, which I know um, Josh is, is just... Tense right now because it's probably gonna happen on Friday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they made they made a pretty effective move to trade up to get Kareem Hunt from the Minnesota Vikings. We all know that ended. Um, and I know there's been some pushback that says, "Hey, is that really a miss? He didn't get a second year contract. He not on the team. Kind of torpedoed like 2018 um, on his own accord. Not like he did. Not like he couldn't have changed the the." Uh, the path of which he was on. Um, so he's not on the roster. Um, and then my biggest, my, my favorite of this, Josh, is what they did to grab uh, Jehu Chesson. Uh-huh. Um, would, you, would you like for me to read the details? Yeah, sure. I've got your story up here, too, if you need me to get you there, whatever, whatever no, you got to do. No, I, I looked this up, right. and I was like, okay, John, okay, Brett, okay, Andy, making this bold move to get my homes, understand it, great gamble, but you do that for quarterbacks. Everybody understands that it's kind of flipped up the 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 way we evaluate this thing, particularly in first rounds with quarterbacks who have, you know, not everybody sold on. Uh you get you get a running back in the third round that is has of great value. Cool. At that point, Clark Hunt should probably be like, fellas, no more. <laughs> in, in, the, in the fourth round of the 2017 draft, and this is no shade to Jehu Chesson, sometimes it just doesn't work out. Um, the, John Dorsey traded two fifth-round picks, 170th, 180th, to the Vikings for the 139th pick. So this is what Josh always says. We traded two darts for one dart. That dart better hit the board. Kids, it, it Correct. didn't hit the board. It, it, it didn't. It may have hit the board and fell, but it didn't. It didn't <laughs> land. Uh, Jehu Chesson wasn't on the team after the 2017 season. So, all of this is to say, no matter what the team does this weekend, it will have massive effects. And in the grander scheme of this, and I know you probably want to get to this, Josh, they can't have another draft like this in the Patrick yeah. Mahomes prime. And that's kind of the lesson I wanted to show. Uh, mm-hmm. our subscribers and fans is that yes you 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 hit it out the park you you got the grand slam with Mahomes that is going to change your franchise forever but if you want to separate this man from Drew Brees and this man from Aaron Rodgers you can't be having any more drafts like this so if you trade up Brett Veach if you trade up Tim Terry if you trade up you know mm-hmm. I, and if if Andy Reid and Clark Hunt Authorize a trade up. You better get it right, because mm-hmm. every dart that you have at your disposal should extend and and thrive the team. As Mahomes hasn't even gotten on his, he hasn't even got on his his giant contract yet. So this draft class <laughs> immensely important, but it can't be like 2017 where you look back four years later and you go, "Wow, they didn't even get a chance to hand a contract to anybody, guys." Like they would have perhaps negotiated to some degree with Tato Passio, but then you look at his stat line from last year and you're like, they just can't. Yeah. Yep. So let me, let me give you my, my quick extra little mini takeaways from this real quick. Cause honestly, I'm really glad this came out because it's also helped me in a very real way. Cause every time I talk about trading up for guys, like I kind of go most recent thing, which was moving up for McCole Hardman. Mm -hmm. People go, Oh, but McCole Hardman. And yeah, sure. Yes. Yes. But McCole Hardman dot, dot, dot. Many of those things that you were thinking are probably true. He's a part of the offense, and maybe he'll keep growing and all that stuff. He's not DK Metcalf, and also there were a lot of dudes in that range from A.J. Brown going after Hollywood Brown and all that stuff, right? That that receiver class, you will find 
uh, a variety of outcomes over a variety of picks that do not necessarily go from highest pick to lowest pick, best player to lowest player. I try to explain that. Some people are not going to listen to me anymore. That's fine. I understand <laughs> it. But whenever you're trading up for Jehu Chesson or in the year after trading up for Breland Speaks mm-hmm. or you trade up for a running mm-hmm. back in Kareem Hunt who had a lot of talent. Can I say something that might be? I'm not sure. This is. I'm going to say it. I'm not going to wait. Just say it. Say it with your chest. Listen, you can say that maybe Kareem Hunt was working out until he all of a sudden wasn't. That was one of the reasons, like, the, there were off the field concerns were one of the reasons that he went as late as he did. Like, yes. we knew that. Yep. There was some of that. It's a part of the equation. Yes. If you, and listen, also, by the way, that is one of the most, like, uh, fluid parts of a human being. I, I don't have any issue with taking a player that you might say he needs to mature sh- mature some because you're taking these dudes in their early 20s for the most part, and most of them probably need to mature, sh- mature some. That's fine. But if you take somebody who gets injured a lot in college and they get injured in the pros, that's not a cop-up that anyone will use. You have somebody make an immature, stupid decision that gets him cut off the team, but you got him later in the draft because of that. That's part of the equation. It's... Anyway. It yes. is part of the equation, and it's worth mentioning because Dorsey, if you'll recall, he actually took some heat with the Hunt pick because it came the year after he picked Tyreek Hill. Yep. And Chris Jones was very different. Like, I just want to make really clear here. There were never questions about Chris Jones, like, off the field type stuff. Yeah. But there were questions, you know, which I still don't get because I remember watching this film. Like, where are people getting this? Like, oh, I don't know about his effort. You know, that kind of stuff. Yep. And we, while we tend – we've heard off-field concerns and it's so unreal and so difficult to talk about. And and we never know what they are usually. Sometimes we do. Uh, that we tend to scoff. But it does matter because, like you said, you're, you're talking about guys in their, their young 20s. In any field, there's going to be reasons beyond talent that yeah. someone doesn't succeed. And, I mean, playing in the NFL is really, really hard. And stressful as hell to one's yeah. mental to one's mental. Yeah, to, to, to get yeah. through this stuff mentally is incredibly difficult. And whether you're a star, whether you're fighting for a starting spot, or whether you're fighting to stay on the bottom of the roster, those things are all, they bring different types of stressors. Imagine if you never knew one week to the next if you'd still have a job or you might go to a different city. That's hard to do so the reason I, I bring this up is that that is part of the risks that you take and I think you're absolutely right it's an interesting thing it it it, it highlights the danger of moving up because again you've traded okay one dart for two darts and ideally that means and Josh you and I talked about this on almost entirely sports right the hope is okay yes I've traded one dart throw uh, or I've traded two dart throws for one dart throw but I'm standing three feet closer Right. You know, in theory, but right. it just, it, it, it's tough because two dart throws are better than one. And so it just, it raises the bar. Something I note when you look at these drafts in terms of who they grabbed, um, it's interesting. It's an interesting reminder just how difficult it can be to get a lot of contributors from any given draft. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I mean, even if you go back like in 2016, I mean, you know, man, he got Tyreek Hill and Chris Jones. And, I mean, this is a lesser extent thing, but, you know, Demarcus Robinson, a contributor. Yes. Yep. Um, but, like, people talk about how the same year that they that that John Dorsey gets praised for drafting Tyreek Hill in the fifth round, they drafted Kevin Hogan before him. They took Kavari Russell in the third round, who didn't make it out of camp. <sighs> oh, that was so bad. Yeah. I would yeah, love. That was, woo! One day, one day when, when BJ writes a tell-all book, we're going to learn some stuff. <laughs> is my theory because I don't know who else to ask on that sort of thing. Um, John Dorsey might write his book soon enough that maybe we get him on the show. He can say, hey, John, listen, this yeah, is really John, weird, but we would like to talk about Kavari Russell. Yeah, it's got to be like the first one. Like, what happened there? So it's something interesting like to talk about the draft because 2017, you know, everyone, it's kind of funny, like everyone wants to give credit to Brett Veach for Patrick Mahomes, but not the blame for the, the rest of the draft. Um, yep. Which, you know, hey, fair is fair. That was his region. Hey, he pounded the table for Mahomes. He deserves it, mm-hmm. right? Um, but then we look to the next year, and while Derek Nottie's still on the roster and Dorian O'Daniel and Armani Watts are still on the roster, that was not a successful draft. Right. And so then, you, and so what I would argue is, the way in 2017, besides Mahomes, and then especially the way 2018 went, colors the way Brett Veach's draft history is viewed. And can I add one thing to that? Yes. What I learned 
in evaluating Jehu Chesson and what and, and look, I've read as much as I can about this draft. I watched the broadcast in 2017. Kids, you learn a lot. Um <laughs> after you know what the facts are four years later. It's just it's wildly fascinating. And obviously I'm a huge dork when it comes to this thing. The reason Jehu Chesson I think is so interesting is not only did the Chiefs go out and give, um, as our friend Sam Mellinger says so eloquently, airport prices to Sammy Watkins. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to draft another player like Jehu Chesson ever again under the Brett Veach era. Because the thing that you realized is Jehu had great hands. He had he got injured in college. That clearly changed the, the trajectory of not only his NFL career, but the tail end of his college career. Um, and then if a wide receiver in college running post routes, fade routes, double routes, can't gain separation in college, that player will not gain separation in the NFL. Mm -hmm. And so for the chiefs, if you ain't got the speed, you're not gonna get on the board. It's just, it's just that simple. Um, because they'll take that player and see if he will fall to where he can maybe be a priority free agent. But that person is not being picked in the draft. I, I don't I don't see that happening again where the body type, the skill set was there, but the lack of speed, the the injury history, and trading up. Mm-hmm. I just I just don't think you're gonna see that again anytime soon. So if you're looking at wide receivers, kids, look at the 40 times. Do they get butt naked open in college? Because that was the thing. That was, shout out to Bomani Jones. That was the thing about McCole Hartman. I don't care how his routes looked. That dude was wide open way too yep. often to understand, well, fellas, he going to be a little bit open running next to Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill. So he'll probably create, he'll still probably create the same level of separation, even though you know it's going to be shortened because obviously you're playing against just the world's greatest D-backs in, in the NFL. So if you can't get open in college, like the, I, I just, I, un, the more you do this, the more you understand. And so um, hopefully this piece will educate people as to mm-hmm. how you should view this draft now, because obviously Orlando Brown's the, the hot, you know, the headliner, similarly to Patrick Mahomes, but what comes after the first round that really, matters. really does matter. It, it matters well, so, so let's, much. Well, let's and let's talk about what what could come in these, especially in the second round that we'll get, uh, the second and third round picks that we'll get on uh, Friday, and then obviously Saturday, the last round, last day of the draft with a whole bunch of rounds at the end of it, um, because we haven't spent much time on that range because we talked about tackles and tackles and tackles, and they traded for a tackle, <laughs> and we talked about him for fifty minutes, and uh, and so with all of that in mind, looking to what the Chiefs could do. In this class, uh, Nate, I'll kick it back at you again. We've, we've talked about a handful of edges over the, the course of the draft as maybe being the Chiefs' second pick. We thought for a while it could have been an edge at 31 if they were going to go bring in a tackle. Now there's no 31, but there is a tackle. Um, the, the other positions of need, talking about receivers, they were mm-hmm. very much in on guys like Juju Smith-Schuster and lost Sammy Watkins. Um, the, the edge position's a bit thin. Right now, corner's still a little bit thin without Bashad Breeland on this roster. Uh, Seth mentioned earlier they could draft the center of the future to compete with Austin Blythe. Where are you looking right now, noting that the Chiefs now do have those two second-round picks? I think this team is probably looking at linebacker more than they would like to suggest. Mm. And uh, I, I don't know if... This is going to be the hard part. And this is a question for you, Clark Hunt, and only you. Um, which I'm sure I'll ask you on Saturday after the draft wraps up. But, like, I don't know if there's anybody who can make an immediate impact at 58 from the defensive end position. Do we do we agree with that, fellas? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking I've, I've talked a lot. I'm scooting back. I'm looking at Twitter right now. I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Seth have this next one. And Seth's answer to Nate's question is, mm. <laughs> I like, I'm doing I thought he was looking for assent. 
I I, like, I don't know if Peyton Turner's gonna be there. Okay, I I just I'm a, I'm gonna just be out here and saying it. I don't know if there's going like I need to prepare Chiefs fans. They might they might not get a defensive end that that matters or that like projects <laughs> to be to be somebody. I know. So again, Listen, for, Nate, for, for for Clark Hunt for Clark Hunt specifically, we at pick forty two, and Brett Veach is on the phone. Ryan Poles is working the numbers in the back. We just talked about this. And he's like, look, I can get us to 45. Just need you to say the word, boss. What does Clark Hunt do? Because <laughs> there are real possibilities that this could be happening on Friday night. Right. Nate, if Brett Veach walks out at the end of uh, the end of the day or at the end of the, pre- the the whole draft or whatever, and he says with a straight face that he says, well, we wanted to add an edge in this year's draft. We felt like this guy was the last guy that really sort of qualified for that tier, so we traded up to get him. I'm never going to play that audio on the radio. I'm going to go find audio from his Bre- from his Breland Speaks pro- post-draft <laughs> press conference, and I'm going to play that. And if, he's, if they trade up for whoever they trade up for, and he says, you know what I love about this guy? He's never on the ground. If he says never on the ground about whoever they draft this year, I'm going to have a panic attack and then a dissociative episode you know orlando brown that's an interesting trait of his is he really is never on the ground (laughs) you know kids sometimes patrick mahomes needs to work in his footwork and sometimes clark you know sometimes brett veach needs to work on just put the phone down control stay stay where you at dog look look, i too i too have walked through home depot when it's summer and i don't have a pressure washer yet and man, look, those snowblowers over there are on sale because it's summer. I too have done that. And it's hard not to spend money. <laughs> you gotta, gotta now, focus. Now, here, now here's Eyes the ahead. It's like, oh, is that a new leaf blower? No, no. You don't now, need that, the leaf blower. <laughs> right, right. Put, put it down. Put it, put it off. Not on the not in the cart, Jim. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so here now here's a legitimate question that I might actually ask Clark Hunt on Saturday when the draft is sort of wrapping up. Sir, they used to tell me, and I ain't gonna tell you who they is, but they used to tell me you was one of the most respected owners in this league who was somewhat conservative, but understood what it took to build a championship roster. And you went and you did what you had to do to go get a Hall of Fame coach. Shout out to you. Obviously, it was the right decision. But in the last, what has Brett Veach and Andy Reid told you in the last three and a half years that you are just willing to just just let go of first round picks, which was a principle of Clark Hunt when he became the owner? Hey, dog, we ain't moving off these first round picks. (laughs) Clark Hunt has got some fever aggression that I want to find out. I would love to hear his answer. Um, I don't know what he'll say on Saturday if I get an opportunity, but he's become more aggressive as an owner than I can remember in the NFL in quite some time. Now, clearly the championship window is here. He's made the decisions that have obviously put the Chiefs in position to succeed. But there was a turn, kids. And more change, but gets more change. And Clark Hunt is out here saying hit me boys hit me on the table we need we need to trade up to get this guy let me make some calls like like it's just at 17 you say hit me because i bet i bet there's a four coming up next (laughs) so josh this the the sensible thing linebacker center cornerback hell uh, we know they never gonna do that. Um, which I'll probably now have spoken it into existence. Hell, maybe tight end. Look, look, baby, look. I've been trying to tell y'all for years to go get a tight end in the third round. Make if not now, win. But you know they may not do that. They may trade up both picks and go get a developmental edge rusher. I'm going. I can't. Seth, you talk now. So <laughs> it'll be fascinating. Yeah, the developmental edge rusher, that'll be tough to take. One thing I would say is it seems like... Not, e- not, not even if it just happens in this one of those two-second round picks. It's fine. It's fu- Just take one of those guys there. But if you move up for him and you cost yourself another pick later on, I'm going to lose. I'm going to have a meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> I... <laughs> I can't keep doing this, Brett. <laughs> so since Josh is walking around his house right now, taking a breath, I I do think it does seem like Brett Veach has learned 
from mistakes in the past and has learned kind of on the job. He took on the role of GM very, very young. And it seems like, and I could be wrong again, you never know, but like, he like say in ways of dealing with the media. You remember like two years ago when he would say a little too much during press conferences. It's like oh, I kind <laughs> and, of I, and I loved every second of it. Yeah, yeah. It's like you, you'd like walk out of there and be like, so I mean, I mean, they just told us what they're gonna do. I should probably write about that, huh? Um, whereas now he just he purposefully schedules press conferences for a specific <laughs> time so he can stare people dead in their eye and lie to them. It's like, God, I, yeah, we, uh, you know, left tackle. Yeah, we looked at the draft. Uh, some can I, can I, like, uh, can I, I tell, can I tell people like a kind of an inside thing going on right now? Yes. Since I'm running the podcast right now while Josh storms off. I'm oh. just fa- I was just facing away from my microphone at this point. Go ahead, Nate. I, I know Dave Gettleman has gotten some flack because my <laughs> man has never traded down kids before during every pre-draft press conference in the Brett Veach era. I'm just gonna be the guy to be like, "All right, Brett, show me the advantageous. Uh, show me the advantages of moving up and moving down. But but start with moving down first. Like that's gonna be my question." <laughs> every year and Brett's gonna laugh at me on on camera and then give me an answer that is sensible that is totally legit I completely understand that like obviously I want fans under I want fans to hear from the general manager why you would trade down in a specific year uh, under specific circumstances but guys it's all a ruse and I enjoy it and I'm gonna do it next year too like it's gonna be great can you try to work this into it? No, they'll never let you talk this long. But you could say, Brett, let's pretend the draft were a game of darts. <laughs> how far forward or backward do you Are move? you willing to go? Yeah. How many feet backward do I move going from the second round to the third round? Please be as specific as possible. <laughs> I... I, this is an important draft for him, though. We've talked about this before. Yeah. It, it really, you know, that 2018 draft lingers. I personally don't think people would be very hard on the 2019 or 2020 drafts um, if it weren't for that 2018 draft. Because that draft was terrible. And we, we could talk about the other drafts since then. You know, we'll see how the 2020 crop does this year. All that fun stuff. Um, it's an important draft, though. And if it doesn't go well... And then, you know, let's say guys don't take a step forward that they're hoping well. That's going to make people ask some questions. And that's worth noting because that really, it was in midway through the 2019 season when some person wrote an article (laughs) saying, is it time to start questioning Brett Beach? And then they um, won the Super Bowl. So that guy learned his lesson. (laughs) But we'll we'll see. But it's an important draft for him, and I really am just here for like, you know, there's a center we really like at forty, <laughs> and they trade like both second round picks. And I and him. I just got off the phone with Pat, and he's he's good with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like like again, Clark Hunt. He has made some great moves. He has empowered people. He's done everything you would want a boss to do by and large. Um. But again, what what are Brett Beach and Reed and Patrick Rose telling this man? Because this is not who he used to be. Yeah, Clark Hunt needs to be like, okay, fellas, fellas, I feel like I need to be the one in the room that says no to a leaf blower. It's a great leaf blower. It's a backpack. It's got great power. But why don't we instead buy a smaller leaf blower and get a lawnmower? Like, or, or he's like, you know, back in my day, we just used to rake, okay? And rake and rake and rake. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Listen, I just think that if everybody in the NFL was this effing good at darts, then it would the draft would be a whole lot more easy to break down one through whatever, one mm-hmm. through 250. I feel don't, like we would see the best player go first. And then don't the worst tell us. The truth, Josh. We're not here for that. I just feel like there wouldn't be five dudes every year in the top ten who bust, and then five dudes in the third round who end up being the best players of their position. I just feel like like Justin Jeff. We got we got both Justins wrong last year. Everybody was making fun of both Justins. Nobody had either Justin going as high as they did. And those are the two guys for rookie of the year. You know, it's just I just would think that if this was such an exact science, <laughs> that maybe the NFL teams would be better at. That's all right, man. That's hard. Maybe they'll trade I do, back. I, I have enjoyed this draft for, season, though. Maybe they'll trade back all their picks. I saw someone 
um, as a joke, obviously, they took the two second round picks and they used, I think it was PFF's model to keep trading back and trading back to where they had like 28 <laughs> picks in yes. the sixth round. Oh, oh, like standing ovation for that person. I am, I am legitimately the patience. I I tip my cap. Here's the issue. Hey man, that's like half the roster. (laughs) How we gonna sign all these players? But hey, I love, I love the ingenuity. You know. Listen, I just. I'm going to leave it alone is what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. I just did so I just looked at the clock and I did some math in my head and I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to say that I I have enjoyed these last couple of months of this show, these last couple of months of our draft talk, a couple of months spent talking about left tackle prospects only to have Brett Beach lie to our dumb dumb faces <laughs> over Zoom. And uh, it's been fun. So the NFL draft itself obviously should be a lot of fun as well. We'll be back sometime after the draft wraps up. I mean, if they trade up on Thursday night, then maybe we'll get an emergency pod. I don't know. If they if they get back up to 31, I did see the Ravens were apparently open to trading back. And I did immediately <laughs> think, like, well, they're going back to 31 gonna, and they're going to take gonna, Jason Owen. They're, they're going to they're gonna trade up to 31, take Tevin Jenkins and start him at yep. yard. <laughs> like, yep. do something yep. just obnoxious. Yep, they're gonna trade their whole draft. They're gonna go back up to thirty-one, and uh, and they're gonna they're gonna just take a yeah. I think I think it's still Tevin Jenkins. I think that's right. Actually, Seth, I like that a lot. Um, and so, if you want more from Seth, his full film review on Orlando Brown is in the Chief of the North newsletter. Uh, I'll have draft coverage live during the draft Friday and Saturday on Sports Radio eight ten. And uh, you can get all the good stuff that I do through 810. Go to the almost, just search for Almost Entirely Sports where you get your podcast. So all the stuff will be up there. Uh, we talked to Seth last night. We're talking to Nate tonight during our draft special show. So more stuff there as well. And of course, everything Nate writes is up on The Athletic. You can follow all of us on Twitter at RealMNChiefsFan, at ByNateTaylor, and at JB Briscoe. Uh, Nate, I'll let you close out this show with, uh, I know you wanted to look back. It's something that we both had a chance to be a part of last night. And uh, I'll give you the floor on the end of the show. Yeah. Um, we got a chance on Tuesday to acknowledge and uh, honor our dear friend, Therese Paler, who uh, unfortunately uh, died earlier uh, this year. We've obviously talked about him before, but um, draft season was Therese season. And so I definitely wanted to acknowledge him here. Um, what we got to do uh, was a mock draft, basically, um, where the people that knew and loved Therese and got to work alongside him in the NFL. Uh, we each got a team to pick from, or multiple teams um, to pick from. Obviously, Josh was there with me last night. Uh, I know uh, Therese meant the world to all three of us. Um, you know, I'm going to give a recommendation right now because uh, clearly this is someone who I just have a ton of appreciation for. And I know Chiefs fans um, are going to remember Therese for a long, long time. Um, and I know that there's a video on, on around on social media. And I need to find this and post it on Twitter later today of him recapping you why it mattered that the Chiefs went up and got Patrick Mahomes um, because he said it in a way that uh, is solely unique to him, but within the understanding of the franchise and where we were in that moment um, for people in Kansas City. The recommendation I'm going to give you guys is a podcast that I think showed Therese's personality and love for the game in in a way that nothing else did. And it's the closest thing I have left that truly reminds me of my friend when we would talk together, whether it was about sports, the NFL, or something else. Um, it is the podcast episode he did with Charles Robinson, his dear friend at Yahoo Sports, their NFL show, um, which was one of my favorite weekly things to listen to. Guys, they reviewed Therese and Charles reviewed the draft day movie, and it is one of the most <laughs> hilarious things I have yes. ever heard. And I did it last year, and I remember texting Therese, Hey, man, I'm about to listen to that episode again because you know it's a couple days before the 2020 draft, which was obviously very unique in its own way just because of it was in a pandemic. Um, but I remember telling them, and we always got a kick out of it, because they eviscerated that movie <laughs> in a way that I just I just truly enjoy, and I'm going to watch Draft Day. Uh, it's one of the movies that my dad truly enjoys, because, look, if you're an NFL fan, you know how ridiculous this all is, and 
I was on the phone with my dad and we can both say the phrase like like this, which is, I want my picks back. So <laughs> look, I can't pick up the phone and call Therese. It is still just painful and bittersweet uh, that I can't do that. But what I can do is I can pull up this episode that's over an hour where they discuss in great detail about a fictitious movie about the Cleveland Browns people. (laughs) And this is how I can still hear my friend and know who he was and honor him in that way. Because, look, man, uh, you should go get an all-juice T-shirt. Those funds are going to go to Howard University, the scholarship that's in his name. I've tweeted out that link a couple times. I'll do that, you know, probably tomorrow night during the draft. Uh, I wore my all juice shirt yesterday. It was a great time, but you know, Therese loved the draft and what it meant for young men, the opportunity to chase their dream, to reach an achievement that so few people do and get a chance to, uh, be supported by their family members on one of the biggest days of their lives. You know, uh, Therese would talk to me all the time about, Hey man, uh, you get married, you may have a kid, but in terms of your professional development, there's nothing like draft day. There's nothing like getting that phone call and furthering your career in the way that you wanted to for, you know, years and years and years. So you should always have that in your perspective, no matter who the Chiefs take this weekend, uh, that this is an immensely emotional day for that player, for their family. And I just know Therese did a wonderful job of combining the human element to the game we all love. And so uh, just wanted to give him a few minutes to honor him and to know that he hated draft day, but he kind of loved it.